Part 2 Section 3 of the Illustrated Key to the Tarot This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Light Crystal The Illustrated Key to the Tarot by L. W. De Laurent, The Doctrine Behind the Veil. The tarot embodies symbolical presentations of universal ideas, behind which lie all the implicits of the human mind, and it is in this sense that they contain secret doctrine, which is the realization by the few of truths embedded in the consciousness of all though they have not passed into express recognition by ordinary men. The theory is that this doctrine has always existed, that is to say, has been excogitated in the consciousness of an elect minority, that it has been perpetuated in secrecy from one to another, and has been recorded in secret literatures like those of alchemy and Kabbalism that it is contained also in those instituted mysteries of which Rosicrucianism offers an example near to our hand in the past, and craft masonry a living summary or general memorial for those who can interpret its real meaning. Behind the secret doctrine, it is held that there is an experience or practice by which the doctrine is justified. It is obvious that in a handbook like the present, I can do little more than state the claims, which, however, have been discussed at length in several of my other writings. While it is designed to treat two of its more important phases in books devoted to the secret tradition, in Freemasonry and in Hermetic literature, as regards tarot claims, it should be remembered that some considerable part of the imputed secret doctrine has been presented in the pictorial emblems of alchemy, so that the imputed Book of Thoth is in no sense a solitary device of this emblematic kind. Now, alchemy had two branches, as I have explained fully elsewhere and the pictorial emblems which I have mentioned are common to both divisions. Its material side is represented in the strange symbolism of the Mutus Liber, printed in the great folios of Mangetus. There, the process for the performance of the great work of transmutation is depicted in 14 copperplate engravings, which exhibit the different stages of the matter in the various chemical vessels. Above these vessels, there are mythological, planetary, solar, and lunar symbols, as if the powers and virtues which, according to hermetic teaching, preside over the development and perfection of the metallic kingdom, were intervening actively to assist the two operators who are toiling below. The operators, curiously enough, are male and female. The spiritual side of alchemy is set forth in the much stranger emblems 
of the Book of Lambspring. Out of this, I have already given a preliminary interpretation to which the reader may be referred. The tract contains the mystery of what is called the mystical or arch-natural elixir, being the marriage of the soul and the spirit in the body of the adept philosopher and the transmutation of the body as the physical result of this marriage. I have never met with more curious intimations than in this one little work. It may be mentioned as a point of fact that both tracts are very much later in time than the latest date that could be assigned to the general distribution of tarot cards in Europe by the most drastic form of criticism. They belong respectively to the end of the 17th and 16th centuries. As I am not drawing here on the font of imagination to refresh that of fact and experience, I do not suggest that the tarot set the example of expressing secret doctrine in pictures and that it was followed by hermetic writers. But it is noticeable that it is perhaps the earliest example of this art. It is also the most Catholic, because it is not, by attribution or otherwise, a derivative of any one school or literature of occultism. It is not of alchemy, or Kabbalism, or astrology, or ceremonial magic, but, as I have said, it is the presentation of universal ideas by means of universal types. And it is in the combination of these types, if anywhere, that it presents secret doctrine. That combination may, ex hypothesi, reside in the numbered sequence of its series, or in their fortuitous assemblage by shuffling, cutting, and dealing, as in ordinary games of chance played with cards. Two writers have adopted the first view without prejudice to the second, and I shall do well, perhaps, to dispose at once of what they have said, Mr. McGregor Mathers, who once published a pamphlet on the tarot, which was in the main devoted to fortune-telling, suggested that the 22 Trumps Major could be constructed following their numerical order into what he called a connected sentence. It was, in fact, the heads of a moral thesis on the human will. Its enlightenment by science, represented by the magician, its manifestation by action, a significance attributed to the High Priestess, its realization, the Empress, in deeds of mercy and beneficence, which qualities were allocated to the Emperor. He spoke also in the familiar, conventional manner of prudence, fortitude, sacrifice, hope and ultimate happiness. But if this were the message of the cards, it is certain that there would be no excuse for publishing them at this day or taking the pains to elucidate them at some length. In his Tarot of the Bohemians, a work written with zeal and enthusiasm, sparing no pains 
of thought or research within its particular lines, but unfortunately without real insight. Dr. Pappas has given a singularly elaborate scheme of the Trump's major. It depends, like that of Mr. Mathers, from their numerical sequence, but exhibits their interrelation in the divine world. The macrocosm and microcosm. In this manner we get, as it were, a spiritual history of man, or of the soul coming out from the eternal, passing into the darkness of the material body, and returning to the height. I think that the author is here within a measurable distance of the right track, and his views are to this extent informing. But his method, in some respects, confuses the issues and the modes and planes of being. The Trump's major have also been treated in the alternative method which I have mentioned, and Grand Orient in his Manual of Cartomancy, under the guise of a mode of transcendental divination, has really offered the result of certain illustrative readings of the cards when arranged as the result of a fortuitous combination by means of shuffling and dealing. The use of divinatory methods with whatsoever intention and for whatever purpose carries with it two suggestions. It may be thought that the deeper meanings are imputed rather than real, but this is disposed of by the fact of certain cards, like the Magician, the High Priestess, the Wheel of Fortune, the Hanged Man, the Tower or Maison Dieu, and several others, which do not correspond to conditions of life, arts, sciences, virtues, or the other subjects contained in the denaries of the Baldini emblematic figures. They are also proof positive that obvious and natural moralities cannot explain the sequence. Such cards testify concerning themselves after another manner, and although the state in which I have left the tarot in respect of its historical side is so much the more difficult, as it is so much the more open, they indicate the real subject matter with which we are concerned. The methods show also that the Trump's major at least have been adapted to fortune-telling rather than belong thereto. The common divinatory meanings which will be given in the third part are largely arbitrary attributions or the product of secondary and uninstructed intuition, or, at the very most, they belong to the subject on a lower plane, apart from the original intention. If the tarot were of fortune-telling in the root matter thereof, we should have to look in very strange places for the motive which devised it to witchcraft and the Black Sabbath rather than any secret doctrine. The two classes of significance which are attached to the tarot in the superior and inferior worlds and the fact that no occult or other writer has attempted to assign anything but a divinatory meaning to the minor arcana justify in yet another manner the hypothesis that the two series do not belong to one another. It is possible that their marriage was effected first in the Tarot of Bologna by that Prince of Pisa, 
whom I have mentioned in the first part. It is said that his device obtained for him public recognition and reward from the city of his adoption, which would scarcely have been possible, even in those fantastic days, for the production of a tarot which only omitted a few of the small cards. But as we are dealing with a question of fact, which has to be accounted for somehow, it is conceivable that a sensation might have been created by a combination of the minor and gambling cards with the philosophical set, and by the adaptation of both to a game of chance. Afterwards, it would have been further adapted to that other game of chance, which is called fortune-telling. It should be understood here that I am not denying the possibility of divination, but I take exception as a mystic to the dedications which bring people into these paths, as if they had any relation to the mystic quest. The tarot cards which are issued with the small edition of the present work, that is to say, with the key to the tarot, have been drawn and coloured by Miss Pamela Coleman-Smith, and will, I think, be regarded as very striking and beautiful in their design alike and execution. They are reproduced in the present enlarged edition of the key as a means of reference to the text. They differ in many important respects from the conventional archaisms of the past and from the wretched products of cold portage which now reach us from Italy, and it remains for me to justify their variation so far as the symbolism is concerned. That for once, in modern times, I present a pack which is the work of an artist does not, I presume, call for apology even to the people, if any remain among us, who used to be described and to call themselves very occult. If any one will look at the gorgeous tarot valet, or knave, who is emblazoned on one of the page plates of Chateau's Facts and Speculations Concerning the History of Plain Cards, he will know that Italy in the old days produced some splendid packs. I could only wish that it had been possible to issue the restored and rectified cards in the same style and size. Such a course would have done full justice to the designs, but the result would have proved unmanageable for those practical purposes which are connected with cards, and for which allowance must be made, whatever my views thereon. For the variations in the symbolism by which the designs have been affected, I alone am responsible. In respect of the major arcana, they are sure to occasion criticism among students, actual and imputed. I wish, therefore, to say, within the reserves of courtesy and la haute convenance, belonging to the Fellowship of Research, that I care nothing utterly for any view that may find expression. There is a secret tradition concerning the tarot, as well as a secret doctrine contained therein. I have followed some part of it, without exceeding the limits of which are drawn about matters of this kind, and belong to the laws of honour. This tradition has two parts, and as one of them has passed into writing, 
it seems to follow that it may be betrayed at any moment, which will not signify, because the second, as I have intimated, has not so passed at present and is held by very few indeed. The purveyors of spurious copy and the traffickers in stolen goods may take note of this point, if they please. I ask, moreover, to be distinguished from two or three writers in recent times, who have thought fit to hint that they could say a good deal more if they liked, for we do not speak the same language, but also from anyone who, now or hereafter, may say that she or he will tell all, because they have only the accidents and not the essentials necessary for such disclosure. If I have followed on my part the counsel of Robert Burns, by keeping something to myself which I scarcely tell to any, I have still said as much as I can. It is the truth after its own manner, and as much as may be expected or required in those outer circles where the qualifications of special research cannot be expected. In regard to the minor arcana, they are the first in modern, but not in all times, to be accompanied by pictures, in addition to what is called the pips, that is to say, the devices belonging to the numbers of the various suits. These pictures respond to divinatory meanings, which have been drawn from many sources. To sum up, therefore, the present division of this key is devoted to the Trump's major, it elucidates their symbols in respect of the higher intention and with reference to the designs in the pack. The third division will give the divinatory significance in respect of the 78 tarot cards and with particular reference to the designs of the minor arcana. It will give, in fine, some modes of use for those who require them and in the sense of the reason which I have already explained in the preface. That which hereinafter follows should be taken, for the purposes of comparison, in connection with the general description of the old tarot trumps in the first part. There it will be seen that the zero card of the fool is allocated, as it always is, to the place which makes it equivalent to the number 21. The arrangement is ridiculous on the surface, which does not much signify, but it is also wrong on the symbolism, nor does this fare better when it is made to replace the 22nd point of the sequence. Etiello recognised the difficulties of both attributions, but he only made bad worse by allocating the fool to the place which is usually occupied by the Ace of Pentacles as the last of the whole tarot series. This rearrangement has been followed by Pappas recently in Le Tarot Divinatoire, where the confusion is of no consequence, as the findings of fortune-telling depend upon fortuitous positions and not upon essential place in the general sequence of cards. I have seen yet another allocation of the zero symbol, which no doubt obtains in certain cases, but it fails on the highest planes and for our present requirements, it would be idle to carry the examination further. Section 2. The Trump's Major and Their Inner Symbolism 1. The Magician A youthful figure in the robe of a magician 
having the countenance of divine Apollo, with smile of confidence and shining eyes. Above his head is the mysterious sign of the Holy Spirit, the sign of life, like an endless cord, forming the figure eight in a horizontal position. About his waist is a serpent cincture, the serpent appearing to devour its own tail. This is familiar to most as a conventional symbol of eternity, but here it indicates more especially the eternity of attainment in the spirit. In the magician's right hand is a wand raised towards heaven, while the left hand is pointing to the earth. This dual sign is known in very high grades of the instituted mysteries. It shows the descent of grace, virtue and light, drawn from things above and derived to things below. The suggestion throughout is therefore the possession and communication of the powers and gifts of the spirit. On the table in front of the magician are the symbols of the four tarot suits, signifying the elements of natural life, which lie like counters before the adept, and he adapts them as he wills. Beneath are roses and lilies, the floss campi and lilium convallium changed into garden flowers to show the culture of aspiration this card signifies the divine motive in man reflecting god the will in the liberation of its union with that which is above it is also the unity of individual being on all planes and in a very high sense it is thought in the fixation thereof with further reference to what I have called the sign of life and its connection with the number eight, it may be remembered that Christian Gnosticism speaks of rebirth in Christ as a change unto the Ogdoad. The mystic number is termed Jerusalem above, the land flowing with milk and honey, the Holy Spirit, and the land of the Lord. According to Martinism, Eight is the number of Christ. Two, the High Priestess. She has the lunar crescent at her feet, a horn diadem on her head, with a globe in the middle place, and a large solar cross on her breast. The scroll in her hands is inscribed with the word Torah, signifying the greater law, the secret law, and the second sense of the word. It is partly covered by her mantle, to show that some things are implied and some spoken. She is seated between the white and black pillars, J and B, of the mystic temple, and the veil of the temple is behind her. It is embroidered with palms and pomegranates. The vestments are flowing and gauzy, and the mantle suggests light, a shimmering radiance. She has been called occult science, on the threshold of the sanctuary of Isis. But she is really the secret church, the house which is of God, nature, and man. She represents also the second marriage of the prince, who is no longer of this world. She is the spiritual bride and mother, the daughter of the stars, and the higher garden of Eden. She is, in fine, the queen of the borrowed light, but this is the light of all. She is the moon nourished by the milk of the supernal mother. In a manner, she is also the supernal mother herself. That is to say, 
she is the bright reflection. It is in this sense of reflection that her truest and highest name in Bolism is Shekinah, the cohabiting glory. According to Kabbalism, there is a Shekinah both above and below. In the superior world, it is called Binar, the supernal understanding which reflects to the emanations that are beneath. In the lower world, it is Malkuth, that word being, for this purpose, understood as a blessed kingdom, that with which it is made blessed, being the indwelling glory. Mystically speaking, the Shekinah is the spiritual bride of the just man, and when he reads the law, she gives the divine meaning. There are some respects in which this card is the highest and holiest of the greater arcana. 3. The Empress A stately figure, seated, having rich vestments and royal aspect, as of a daughter of heaven and earth. Her diadem is of twelve stars, gathered in a cluster. A symbol of Venus is on the shield which rests near her, a field of corn is ripening in front of her, and beyond there is a fall of water. The scepter which she bears is surmounted by the globe of this world. She is the inferior garden of Eden, the earthly paradise, all that is symbolized by the visible house of man. She is not Regina Coeli, but she is still Refugium Peccatorum the fruitful mother of thousands. There are also certain aspects in which she has been correctly described as desire and the wings thereof, as the woman clothed with the sun, as Gloria Mundi and the veil of the Sanctum Sanctorum. But she is not, I may add, the soul that has attained wings, unless all the symbolism is counted up another and unusual way. She is above all things universal fecundity and the outer sense of the word. This is obvious, because there is no direct message which has been given to man like that which is borne by woman. But she does not herself carry its interpretation. In another order of ideas, the card of the Empress signifies the door or gate by which an entrance is obtained into this life, as into the garden of Venus, and then the way which leads out therefrom, into that which is beyond, is the secret known to the High Priestess. It is communicated by her to the elect. Most old attributions of this card are completely wrong on the symbolism, as, for example, its identification with the word, divine nature, the triad, and so forth. 4. The Emperor He has a form of the crux and sata for his scepter and a globe in his left hand. He is crowned monarch, commanding, stately, seated on a throne, the arms of which are fronted by ram's heads. He is executive and realization, the power of this world here clothed with the highest of its natural attributes. He is occasionally represented as seated on a cubic stone, which, however, confuses some of the issues. He is the virile power to which the Empress responds, and in this sense 
is he who seeks to remove the veil of Isis, yet she remains Virgo intacta. It should be understood that this card and that of the Empress do not precisely represent the condition of married life, though this state is implied. On the surface, as I have indicated, they stand for mundane royalty, uplifted on the seats of the mighty, but above this there is a suggestion of another presence. They signify also, and the male figure especially, the higher kingship, occupying the intellectual throne. Hereof is the lordship of thought rather than of the animal world. Both personalities, after their own manner, are full of strange experience, but theirs is not consciously the wisdom which draws from a higher world. The emperor has been described as a will in its embodied form, but this is only one of its applications, and b as an expression of virtualities contained in the absolute being, but this is fantasy. 5. The Hierophant He wears the triple crown and is seated between two pillars, but they are not those of the temple which is guarded by the high priestess. In his left hand he holds a scepter terminating in the triple cross, and with his right hand he gives the well-known ecclesiastical sign which is called that of esotericism, distinguishing between the manifest and concealed part of doctrine. It is noticeable in this connection that the high priestess makes no sign. At his feet are the cross keys, and two priestly ministers in albs kneel before him. He has been usually called the Pope, which is a particular application of the more general office that he symbolizes. He is the ruling power of external religion, as the high priestess is the prevailing genius of the esoteric, withdrawn power. The proper meanings of this card have suffered woeful admixture from nearly all hands. Grand Orient says truly that the Hierophant is the power of the keys, exoteric orthodox doctrine, and the outer side of the life which leads to the doctrine. But he is certainly not the prince of occult doctrine, as another commentator has suggested. He is rather the summer totius theologi, when it has passed into the utmost rigidity of expression. But he symbolizes also all things that are righteous and sacred on the manifest side. As such, he is the channel of grace belonging to the world of institution as distinct from that of nature, and he is the leader of salvation for the human race at large. He is the order and the head of the recognized hierarchy, which is the reflection of another and greater hierarchic order. But it may so happen that the pontiff forgets the significance of this, his symbolic state, and acts as if he contained within his proper measures all that his sign signifies, or his symbol seeks to show forth. He is not, as it has been thought, philosophy, except on the theological side, 
He is not inspiration, and he is not religion, although he is a mode of its expression. 6. The Lovers The sun shines in the zenith, and beneath is a great winged figure with arms extended, pouring down influences. In the foreground are two human figures, male and female, unveiled before each other, as if Adam and Eve when they first occupy the paradise of the earthly body. Behind the man is the tree of life, bearing twelve fruits, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is behind the woman. The serpent is twining round it. The figures suggest youth, virginity, innocence, and love before it is contaminated by gross material desire. This is in all simplicity the card of human love, here exhibited as part of the way, the truth, and the life. It replaces, by recourse to first principles, the old card of marriage, which I have described previously, and the later follies which depicted man between vice and virtue. In a very high sense, the card is a mystery of the covenant and Sabbath. The suggestion in respect of the woman is that she signifies that attraction towards a sensitive life which carries within it the idea of the fall of man. But she is rather the working of a secret law of providence than a willing and conscious temptress. It is through her imputed lapse that man shall arise ultimately, and only by her can he complete himself. The card is therefore in its way another intimation concerning the great mystery of womanhood. The old meanings fall to pieces of necessity with the old pictures, but even as interpretations of the latter, some of them were of the order of commonplace, and others were false in symbolism. 7. The Chariot An erect and princely figure, carrying a drawn sword, and corresponding, broadly speaking, to the traditional description which I have given in the first part. On the shoulders of the victorious hero are supposed to be the Urim and Thummim, he has led captivity captive. He is conquest on all planes. In the mind, in science, in progress, in certain trials of initiation. He has thus replied to the Sphinx, and it is on this account that I have accepted the variation of Ephesus Levi. Two Sphinxes thus draw his chariot. He is above all things triumph in the mind. It is to be understood for this reason, a, that the question of the Sphinx is concerned with a mystery of nature, and not of the world of grace, to which the charioteer could offer no answer, b, that the planes of his conquest are manifest or external, and not within himself, c, that the liberation which he effects may leave himself in the bondage of the logical understanding, d, that the tests of initiation, through which he has passed in triumph, are to be understood physically or rationally. And e, that if he came to the pillars of that temple, 
between which the high priestess is seated, he could not open the scroll called Torah, nor if she questioned him could he answer. He is not hereditary royalty, and he is not a priesthood. 8. Strength or Fortitude A woman, over whose head there broods the same symbol of life which we have seen in the card of the Hierophant, is closing the jaws of a lion. The only point in which this design differs from the conventional presentations is that her beneficent fortitude has already subdued the lion, which is being led by a chain of flowers. For reasons which satisfy myself, this card has been interchanged with that of justice, which is usually numbered eight. As the variation carries nothing with it, which will signify to the reader, there is no cause for explanation. Fortitude, in one of its most exalted aspects, is connected with the divine mystery of union. The virtue, of course, operates in all planes, and hence draws on all in its symbolism. It connects also with innocentia inviolata, and with the strength which resides in contemplation. These higher meanings are, however, matters of inference, and I do not suggest that they are transparent on the surface of the card. They are intimated in a concealed manner by the chain of flowers, which signifies, among many other things, the sweet yoke and the light burden of divine law, when it has been taken into the heart of hearts. The card has nothing to do with self-confidence in the ordinary sense, though this has been suggested, but it concerns the confidence of those whose strength is God, nature, who have found their refuge in Him. There is one aspect in which the lion signifies the passions, and she who is called strength is the higher nature in its liberation. It has walked upon the asp and the basilisk, and has trodden down the lion and the dragon. 9. The Hermit The variation from the conventional models in this card is only that the lamp is not enveloped partially in the mantle of its bearer. Who blends the idea of the Ancient of Days with the light of the world? It is a star which shines in the lantern. I have said that this is a card of attainment, and to extend this conception, the figure is seen holding up his beacon on an eminence. Therefore the hermit is not, as Court de Gebelin explained, a wise man in search of truth and justice, nor is he, as a later explanation proposes, an especial example of experience. His beacon intimates that, where I am, you also may be. It is further a card which is understood quite incorrectly when it is connected with the idea of occult isolation as the protection of personal magnetism against admixture. This is one of the frivolous renderings which we owe to Eliphaz Levi. It has been adopted by the French order of Martinism and some of us have heard a great deal of the silent and unknown philosophy enveloped by his mantle from the knowledge of the profane. 
In true Martinism, the significance of the term philosophy in Konu was of another order. It did not refer to the intended concealment of the instituted mysteries, much less of their substitutes, but, like the card itself, to the truth that the divine mysteries secure their own protection from those who are unprepared. 10. Wheel of Fortune In this symbol, I have again followed the reconstruction of Eliphaz Levi, who has furnished several variants. It is legitimate, as I have intimated, to use Egyptian symbolism when this serves our purpose, provided that no theory of origin is implied therein. I have, however, presented Typhon in his serpent form. The symbolism is, of course, not exclusively Egyptian, as the four living creatures of Ezekiel occupy the angles of the card, and the wheel itself follows other indications of Levi in respect of Ezekiel's vision, as illustrative of the particular tarot key. With the French occultist, and in the design itself, the symbolic picture stands for the perpetual motion of a fluidic universe, and for the flux of human life. Thus, Sphinx is the equilibrium therein. The transliteration of Tarot as Rota is inscribed on the wheel, counterchanged with the letters of the divine name, to show that providence is implied through all. But this is the divine intention within, and the similar intention without is exemplified by the four living creatures. Sometimes the Sphinx is represented couchant, on a pedestal above, which defrauds the symbolism by stultifying the essential idea of stability amidst movement. Behind the general notion expressed in the symbol, there lies the denial of chance and the fatality which is implied therein. It may be added that, from the days of Levi onward, the occult explanations of this card are, even for occultism itself, of a singularly fatuous kind. It has been said to mean principle, fecundity, virile honour, ruling authority, etc. The findings of common fortune-telling are better than this on their own plane. 11. Justice As this card follows the traditional symbolism and carries above all its obvious meanings, there is little to say regarding it outside the few considerations collected in the first part, to which the reader is referred. It will be seen, however, that the figure is seated between pillars, like the High Priestess, and on this account it seems desirable to indicate that the moral principle which deals unto every man according to his works, while, of course, it is, a, is in strict analogy with high things, differs in its essence from the spiritual justice which is involved in the idea of election. The latter belongs to a mysterious order of providence, in virtue of which it is possible for certain men to conceive the idea of dedication to the highest things. The operation of this is like the breathing of the spirit where it wills, and we have no canon of criticism 
or ground of explanation concerning it. It is analogous to the possession of the fairy gifts and the high gifts and the gracious gifts of the poet. We have them or have not, and their presence is as much a mystery as their absence. The law of justice is not, however, involved by either alternative. In conclusion, the pillars of justice open into one world and the pillars of the high priestess into another. 12. The Hanged Man The gallows from which he is suspended forms a tau cross, while the figure, from the position of the legs, forms a filfot cross. There is a nimbus about the head of the seeming martyr. It should be noted, one, that the tree of sacrifice is living wood with leaves thereon, two, that the face expresses deep entrancement, not suffering, three, that the figure as a whole suggests life in suspension, but life and not death. It is a card of profound significance but all the significance is veiled. One of his editors suggests that Eliphas Levi did not know the meaning, which is unquestionable, nor did the editor himself. It has been called falsely a card of martyrdom, a card of prudence, a card of the great work, a card of duty, but we may exhaust all published interpretations and find only vanity. I will say very simply, on my own part, that it expresses the relation in one of its aspects between the divine and the universe. He who can understand that the story of his higher nature is embedded in this symbolism will receive intimations concerning a great awakening that is possible, and will know that after the sacred mystery of death, there is a glorious mystery of resurrection. 13. Death The veil or mask of life is perpetuated in change, transformation, and passage from lower to higher, and this is more fitly represented in the rectified tarot by one of the apocalyptic visions than by the crude notion of the reaping skeleton. Behind it lies the whole world of ascent in the spirit. The mysterious horseman moves slowly, bearing a black banner emblazoned with the mystic rose, which signifies life. Between two pillars on the verge of the horizon, there shines the sun of immortality. The horseman carries no visible weapon, but king and child and maiden fall before him, while a prelate with clasped hands awaits his end. There should be no need to point out that the suggestion of death, which I have made in connection with the previous card, is, of course, to be understood mystically. But this is not the case in the present instance. The natural transit of man to the next stage of his being either is or may be one form of his progress but the exotic and almost unknown entrance while still in this life into the state of mystical death 
is a change in the form of consciousness and the passage into a state to which ordinary death is neither the path nor gate. The existing occult explanations of the 13th card are, on the whole, better than usual. Rebirth, creation, destination, renewal, and the rest. 14. Temperance. A winged angel with the sign of the sun upon his forehead and on his breast the square and triangle of the septenary. I speak of him in the masculine sense, but the figure is neither male nor female. It is held to be pouring the essences of life from chalice to chalice. It has one foot upon the earth and one upon waters, thus illustrating the nature of the essences. A direct path goes up to certain heights on the verge of the horizon, and above there is a great light through which a crown is seen vaguely. Hereof is some part of this secret of eternal life, as it is possible to man in his incarnation. All the conventional emblems are renounced herein. So also are the conventional meanings which refer to changes in the seasons, perpetual movement of life, and even the combination of ideas. It is, moreover, untrue to say that the figure symbolizes the genius of the sun, though it is the analogy of solar light realized in the third part of our human triplicity. It is called temperance, fantastically, because when the rule of it obtains in our consciousness, it tempers, combines, and harmonizes the psychic and material natures. Under that rule we know, in our rational part, something of whence we came and whither we are going. 15. The Devil The design is an accommodation, mean or harmony, between several motives mentioned in the first part. The horned goat of Mendes, with wings like those of a bat, is standing on an altar. At the pit of the stomach there is the sign of Mercury. The right hand is upraised and extended, being the reverse of that benediction which is given by the Hierophant in the fifth card. In the left hand there is a great flaming torch inverted towards the earth. A reversed pentagram is on the forehead. There is a ring in front of the altar, from which two chains are carried to the necks of two figures, male and female. These are analogous with those of the fifth card, as if Adam and Eve after the fall. Hereof is the chain and fatality of the material life. The figures are tailed, to signify the animal nature, but there is human intelligence in the faces, and he who is exalted above them is not to be their master for ever. Even now he is also a bondsman, sustained by the evil that is in him, and blind to the liberty of service. With more than his usual derision for the arts, which he pretended to respect and interpret as a master therein, Eliphaz Levi affirms that the Baphometic figure 
is occult science and magic. Another commentator says that in the divine world it signifies predestination, but there is no correspondence in that world with the things which below are of the brute. What it does signify is the dweller on the threshold without the mystical garden when those are driven forth therefrom who have eaten the forbidden fruit. 60. The Tower Occult explanations attached to this card are meagre and mostly disconcerting. It is idle to indicate that it depicts ruin in all its aspects because it bears this evidence on the surface. It is said further that it contains the first allusion to a material building, but I do not conceive that the tower is more or less material than the pillars which we have met with in three previous cases. I see nothing to warrant Pappas in supposing that it is literally the fall of Adam, but there is more in favour of his alternative, that it signifies the materialization of the spiritual word. The bibliographer Christian imagines that it is the downfall of the mind, seeking to penetrate the mystery of God, nature. I agree rather with Grand Orient that it is the ruin of the house of life, when evil has prevailed therein, and above all that it is the rending of a house of doctrine. I understand that the reference is, however, to a house of falsehood. It illustrates also, in the most comprehensive way, the old truth that, except the Lord build the house, they labour in vain that build it. There is a sense in which the catastrophe is a reflection from the previous card, but not on the side of the symbolism which I have tried to indicate therein. It is more correctly a question of analogy. One is concerned with the fall into the material and animal state, while the other signifies destruction on the intellectual side. The tower has been spoken of as the chastisement of pride and the intellect overwhelmed in the attempt to penetrate the mystery of God, nature. But in neither case do these explanations account for the two persons who are the living sufferers. The one is the literal word made void, and the other its false interpretation. In yet a deeper sense, it may signify also the end of a dispensation, but there is no possibility here for the consideration of this involved question. 70. The Star A great radiant star of eight rays, surrounded by seven lesser stars, also of eight rays. The female figure in the foreground is entirely naked. Her left knee is on the land, and her right foot upon the water. She pours water of life from two great ewers, irrigating sea and land. Behind her is rising ground, and on the right a shrub or tree, whereon a bird alights. The figure expresses eternal youth and beauty, the star is L'Etoile, flamboyant, which appears in Masonic symbolism, but has been confused therein. 
That which the figure communicates to the living scene is the substance of the heavens and the elements. It has been said truly that the mottos of this card are Waters of Life Freely and Gifts of the Spirit. The summary of several tawdry explanations says that it is a card of hope. On other planes it has been certified as immortality and interior light. For the majority of prepared minds, the figure will appear as the type of truth unveiled, glorious in undying beauty, pouring on the waters of the soul some part and measure of her priceless possession. But she is in reality the Great Mother in the Kabbalistic Sephira Binar, which is supernal understanding, who communicates to the Sephiroth that are below in the measure that they can receive her influx. 18. The Moon The distinction between this card and some of the conventional types is that the moon is increasing on what is called the side of mercy, to the right of the observer. He has 16 chief and 16 secondary rays. The card represents life of the imagination apart from life of the spirit. The path between the towers is the issue into the unknown. The dog and the wolf are the fears of the natural mind in the presence of that place of exit when there is only reflected light to guide it. The last reference is a key to another form of symbolism. The intellectual light is a reflection and beyond it is the unknown mystery which it cannot show forth. It eliminates our animal nature, types of which are represented below, the dog, the wolf, and that which comes up out of the deeps, the nameless and hideous tendency which is lower than the savage beast. It strives to attain manifestation, symbolized by crawling from the abyss of water to the land, but as a rule it sinks back whence it came. The face of the mind directs a calm gaze upon the unrest below. The dew of thought falls. The message is, peace. Be still, and it may be that there shall come a calm upon the animal nature, while the abyss beneath shall cease from giving up a form. 19. The Sun The naked child mounted on a white horse and displaying a red standard has been mentioned already as the better symbolism connected with this card. It is the destiny of the supernatural East and the great and holy light which goes before the endless procession of humanity coming out from the walled garden of the sensitive life and passing on the journey home. The card signifies, therefore, the transit from the manifest light of this world represented by the glorious Son of Earth to the light of the world to come, which goes before aspiration and is typified by the heart of a child. But the last illusion is again the key to a different form or aspect of the symbolism. 
the sun is that of consciousness in the spirit, the direct as the antithesis of the reflected light. The characteristic type of humanity has become a little child therein, a child in the sense of simplicity and innocence in the sense of wisdom. In that simplicity, he bears a seal of nature and of art. In that innocence, he signifies the restored world. When the self-knowing spirit has dawned in the consciousness above the natural mind, that mind in its renewal leads forth the animal nature in a state of perfect conformity. 20. The Last Judgment I have said that this symbol is essentially invariable in all tarot sets, or at least the variations do not alter its character. The great angel is here encompassed by clouds, but he blows his bannered trumpet, and the cross as usual is displayed on the banner. The dead are rising from their tombs, a woman on the right, a man on the left hand, and between them their child, whose back is turned. But in this card there are more than three who are restored, and it has been thought worthwhile to make this variation as illustrating the insufficiency of current explanations. It should be noted that all the figures are as one in the wonder, adoration, and ecstasy expressed by their attitudes. It is the card which registers the accomplishment of the great work of transformation in answer to the summons of the supernal, which summons is heard and answered from within. Herein is the intimation of a significance which cannot well be carried further in the present place. What is that within us which does sound a trumpet and all that is lower in our nature rises in response? Almost in a moment, almost in the twinkling of an eye. Let the card continue to depict, for those who can see no further, the last judgment and the resurrection in the natural body. But let those who have inward eyes look and discover therewith. They will understand that it has been called truly in the past a card of eternal life. And for this reason it may be compared with that which passes under the name of temperance. Zero, the Fool With light step, as if earth and its trammels had little power to restrain him, a young man in gorgeous vestments pauses at the brink of a precipice among the great heights of the world. He surveys the blue distance before him, its expanse of sky rather than the prospect below. His act of eager walking is still indicated, though he is stationary at the given moment. His dog is still bounding. The edge which opens up on the earth depth has no terror. It is as if angels were waiting to uphold him. If it came about that he leaped from the height. His countenance is full of intelligence and expectant dream. He has a rose in one hand and in the other a costly wand, from which depends over his right shoulder a wallet curiously embroidered. He is a prince of the other world on his travels through this one. 
all amidst the morning glory in the keen air. The sun, which shines behind him, knows whence he came, whither he is going, and how he will return by another path after many days. He is the spirit in search of experience. Many symbols of the instituted mysteries are summarized in this card, which reverses, under high warrants, all the confusions that have preceded it. In his Manual of Cartomancy, Grand Orient has a curious suggestion of the office of Mystic Fool as a part of his process in higher divination, but it might call for more than ordinary gifts to put it into op operation. We shall see how the card fares according to the common arts of fortune-telling, and it will be an example to those who can discern of the fact otherwise so evident that the Trump's major had no place originally in the arts of psychic gambling when cards are used as the counters and pretexts. Of the circumstances under which this art arose we know, however, very little. The conventional explanations say that the fool signifies the flesh, the sensitive life, and by a peculiar satire its subsidiary name was at one time the alchemist, as depicting folly at the most insensate stage. 21. The World As this final message of the major trumps is unchanged, and indeed unchangeable, in respect of its design, it has been partly described already regarding its deeper sense. It represents also the perfection and end of the cosmos, the secret which is within it, the rapture of the universe when it understands itself in God, nature. It is further the state of the soul in the consciousness of divine vision, reflected from the self-knowing spirit. But these meanings are without prejudice to that which I have said concerning it on the material side. It has more than one message on the macrocosmic side, and is for example, the state of the restored world, when the law of manifestation shall have been carried to the highest degree of natural perfection, but is perhaps more especially a story of the past, referring to that day when all was declared to be good, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, nature, shouted for joy. One of the worst explanations concerning it is that the figure symbolizes the magus when he has reached the highest degree of initiation. Another account says that it represents the absolute, which is ridiculous. The figure has been said to stand for truth, which is, however, more properly allocated to the seventeenth card. Lastly, it has been called the crown of the magi. Section 3. Conclusion as to the Greater Keys There has been no attempt in the previous tabulation to present the symbolism in what is called the Three Worlds, that of divinity, of the macrocosm, and the microcosm. A large volume would be required for developments of this kind. 
I have taken the cards on the high plane of their more direct significance to man, who, in material life, is on the quest of eternal things. The compiler of the Manual of Cardamancy has treated them under three headings, the world of human prudence, which does not differ from divination on its more serious side, the world of conformity, being the life of religious devotion, and the world of attainment, which is that of the soul's progress towards the term of its research. He gives also a triple process of consultation, according to these divisions, to which the reader is referred. I have no such process to offer, as I think that more may be gained by the individual reflection on each of the trumps major. I have also not adopted the prevailing attribution of the cards of the Hebrew alphabet, firstly, because it would serve no purpose in an elementary handbook, secondly, because nearly every attribution is wrong, finally, I have not attempted to rectify the position of the cards in their relation to one another. The zero therefore appears after number 20, but I have taken care not to number the world or universe otherwise than as 21. Wherever it ought to be put, the zero is an unnumbered card. In conclusion as to this part, I will give these further indications regarding the fool. Which is the most speaking of all the symbols? He signifies the journey outward, the state of the first emanation, the graces and passivity of the spirit. His wallet is inscribed with dim signs to show that many subconscious memories are stored up in the soul. End of The Doctrine Behind the Veil